This past year, we've been emphasizing spiritual practices. These exercises help us align with God's grace in our lives and in the world. They are the ways that we embody our faith and participate in God's transformation of our world. These practices are also ways that we embody the postures that we hold as a church community. Backward, forward, inward and outward, these postures embrace all of our lives, inner and outer, individually and communally. And they remind us that God wants to bring wholeness and healing to our whole selves, to our whole community and to the whole world. Now, one of our projects this fall has been to gather all of these practices together on our website so that you can access and revisit them whenever you have the time or space. Our team has done an amazing job of collecting most of our resources in one place and there will be more to come. So here's how you can access our spiritual practices webpage. Go to our homepage, lakeviewchurch.com. Click learn at the top of the page. In the drop-down menu, click spiritual practices. You'll find yourself on the spiritual practices page. You'll see that we've categorized the practices under our postures. Backward, forward, inward, outward. Click any of these postures and you'll find an explanation of the posture and the practices that help us hold this posture in the world. Then click any of the practices and you'll find an explanation for that practice and specifics helping you integrate these rhythms into your life. We invite you to explore our new spiritual practices website this week. It doesn't matter where you are in life, God is present with you. And we hope that as you peruse this webpage, you'll locate a practice that helps you to tap into the grace of God in your life, find greater freedom and grow deeper in love for God and for others. So uh, we're continuing in our series on stories of restart in the Bible this morning. Um, but this week's story of restart is a little bit different than our previous stories of restart. So most of our previous stories have been initiated by outside forces. They involve an actual physical journey in most of the lives of the characters. So God calls Abraham, right, from Haran to Canaan. So he sets out on a journey. Hagar is sent out into the desert. Jacob finds himself stuck at a river between his enraged father-in-law and his estranged brother. Moses is called back to Egypt. The people of Israel are called out of Egypt. Last week, Ruth and Naomi journey to Bethlehem. There's a physical restart involved in all of these stories. Well, this week's story of restart doesn't involve a change of scenery. This story of restart involves the long journey that happens in one man's heart, caused entirely by his own doing as he deals with his sin. It is the long journey inward. It is an inward restart. You'll remember, sorry guys, I totally messed something up and Tyson's fixing it for me. <laughs> You'll also remember that last week our sermon ended on a hopeful note. At the end of Ruth, uh, remember Ruth took, time, took place in the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king. We read that a king is coming. Ruth is the grandmother 
of King David. The king would provide hope, he would provide leadership, he would help the community live in peace and shalom with one another. A king would bring order to the people. And this week we're going to talk about that King David, but we're going to talk about what happens when the king himself decides what to do, what is right in his own eyes. Today we're exploring the story of David's great sin. We'll be spending some time in the passage that tells us the story of it, uh, but here's the lowdown if you've never heard this story. So David now is king. He's the great king of Israel. Um, his, his men, his army, they're out um, at war, but David has stayed home. And one night, he is wandering uh, on the rooftop of his palace, and he looks down, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba. And instead of turning around and walking right back into his palace, he takes advantage of his power he assaults her, he impregnates her, and then in order to cover up his tracks, he sends her husband to the front lines where he will be killed. And then David takes Bathsheba as his own wife and goes on his merry way. That is, until Nathan comes into the palace courts and confronts him with his many sins. And David, repentant, pens Psalm 51, our passage for today. Uh, you could open your Bibles or get on your phone if you want to read along together with me, but let's read Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight, and you will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. So purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Give me back my joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins, remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves, and then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit, and you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. So there are lots of topics that we don't like to talk about, especially in church. You know, right now there's vaccines and protocols and politics, sex, gender. All of these things make us feel uncomfortable, right? Well, the good news is we're not talking about anything like that today. The bad news is we're going to talk about sin, which I think can be just about as uncomfortable as any of those other topics. 
even though we're a church, right? Because this is what we talk about. We deal with and talk about sin, except we don't really very often because it's a hard topic. It's not super trendy. You talk about it too much. People might not come back. And I get it because we don't like talking about sin because often it makes us feeling guilt and shame. It creates a problem that wasn't there to begin with. It makes us want to run and hide. And we don't come to church to be made to feel bad. We come for a boost. We come for encouragement to get a good dose of energy in an otherwise difficult life. So some of us, we hold the idea of sin so far away from ourselves that it has entirely lost meaning for us. We're not really even sure if sin is a thing. Sin is a word that you use at church to encourage me to come to church more, maybe to give some money, to be a better person. That's what sin is. Talking about sin doesn't really solve a problem in my life. It creates a problem in my life. And I'd rather just go to therapy or take up yoga or get on medication. We have enough problems already, right? But on the other hand, we can examine the concept of sin so closely that it almost becomes meaningless. So here was my experience this week. This week, I chased down meaning, the meaning for words like uh, transgression, which means a violation of the covenant of God. So David violated the covenant, right? Yeah, okay, I get it. Iniquity, which means deviating from the path, from this Bound, these boundaries set out for, for him. David didn't like stay within the boundaries that God gave him. Get it. Or sin also is a word that, for sin. David falls short of the bar. He doesn't measure up. He failed to meet the standards. And after st understanding all of the definitions of these things, I didn't feel any closer to really understanding what sin was. All of these are true definitions of sin, but they weren't really helpful for my heart, for my embodied experience of what it means to be a human in the world. They just kind of kept me at arm's length from the idea of sin. They made it a concept, an idea. So they got me in my head thinking, okay, like David violates the Ten Commandments. God said don't commit adultery and don't murder. So he broke the rules and that's sin. Okay, uh, God had a covenant with David, and David didn't fulfill his end of the covenant. Okay, I get that. Uh, David didn't measure up. Okay, I got it. It was like, you know, adding up columns in a ledger. And it all just drains the life out of me, and it also made for a really boring sermon. See, whether we want to pretend that sin doesn't exist, or we like to keep it at arm's length by trying to think that maybe we can fix the problem by greater understanding or through dissection. The truth is that sin is a thing. We experience it every day. Pretending that it doesn't exist doesn't make it go away. But it's also true that no matter how much we understand about sin, the problem we have isn't really about understanding. What we need is help dealing with it. Both of these ways of approaching and understanding sin actually keep us from the essential meaning of sin and keep us from dealing with what sin actually is. And sin is a relationship 
issue. So the story of creation and the fall reveals this truth, right? That the goodness of creation is found in relatedness. God says it is very good. The man and the woman relate to one another without shame in their vulnerability. They relate to God without shame. They live in the garden and they steward creation in a way that doesn't dominate it or, or victimize it or one another. But when sin enters the story, this interrelatedness starts to disintegrate. First, man and women hide their nakedness from one another. There's this disintegration of relationship between them and with themselves. And then they hide from God and they blame one another for what happened. And then they're kicked out of the garden, alienated from creation. Sin is sin, not because they broke the rules, but because it breaks the flow of relationship. And if we read the Ten Commandments, we see the same issue of relatedness is central to them. So God doesn't say don't worship other idols uh, because he's a mean God. He says it because he wants to live in primary relationship with us. He says, I am the one that you should worship. When God says don't commit adultery, it's because adultery dishonors another human being. It breaks relationship. We don't murder because it's killing the image of God in another person. It's the ultimate denial of human dignity. We don't covet our neighbor's stuff because then we can't live in right relationship with our neighbor. Sin is sin because it breaks the flow of relationship. Dealing with sin doesn't mean that we find a way to balance the books of our rights and wrongs. And dealing with sin doesn't mean that we bury our head in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist. Because all it takes is one look at our own lives, the lives of friends and family, at the stories in the world. And we know that disintegration of relationships is a part of our lives. None of us is immune. Dealing with sin means that we recognize that we were made to live in right relationship and we all fail to do it. Dealing with sin means we recognize we were made to live in right relationship with God, but there is something in the way. And Psalm 51 reveals this. Listen to these verses. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So David says, against you only, God, have I sinned. I was sinful from birth. So a couple of points I want to make here about these verses is first, David is dialing down in order to get to the heart of what sin is, where sin is located. He is not saying that others were not sinned against. He assaulted a woman. He essentially had her husband killed. He has definitely sinned against other people. What he is saying is that ultimately at its heart, his sin was first a turning away from God. That's where it began. Before sin was a betrayal of others, it was a betrayal of this central and orienting relationship, his relationship with God. Secondly, these verses are often used as a defense of original sin. 
that children are born bad, that essentially at our core, we are unacceptable to God. This is not what this passage is saying. First off, David is not making a theological statement here. And second off, crea- secondly, creation tells us the opposite. We are actually made very, very good. We are God's good creation. And before anything else is true about us, what is true about us is that we are loved and accepted and good. What David is saying here is that sin is inescapable. We are born into brokenness. It is unavoidable. We will never get it all right. There is something wrong with the world, and we know it, and we become complicit in it. Nobody gets out alive. And recovering a relational definition of sin means that we admit that we cannot improve or fix our lives without dealing with broken relationships. And in order to deal with relationships, we have to deal with the ultimate relationship, our relationship with God. And this is what it means to deal with sin. So, how do you avoid dealing with sin? Do you distract yourself with other systems and programs that help you avoid where sin is in your own life or in the world? Are you so busy living your best life and pursuing the program for five steps to firmer thighs that you avoid dealing with the thing that you know is at the heart of your issue? It's sin. It's brokenness. Now, I am all for yoga and therapy and medication. I use all of those things to help me stay healthy, mentally, physically, and even spiritually. And I am not telling you that your mental health issues are because you sinned or that you have cancer because you sinned, because that's not true. These are a part of being in an imperfect, fallen world, but they are not your fault. That is not a result of your sin. What I am saying is that if you have a sin problem, all those therapies won't help you because you're not dealing with the problem. You have to deal with God in order to deal with sin. Or perhaps the way that you avoid naming sin for what it is is by pursuing perfection. You know all the definitions for sin. You know the rules, and you keep them, and you make sure other people keep them too. You do your best to measure up, and you make sure other people do it. But what is missing is relationship. There is no heart. And in fact, all your focus on sin is actually undermining your relationships and keeping you separated from community and connection. Avoiding our sin is also avoiding God. Because when we deal with sin, we deal with God. And God deals in truth. Do you know where this story of David's restart comes in this story? It comes when he is confronted with the truth of his sin. So David cleans up his mess. Uh, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, has died a hero's death. Bathsheba and her unborn child are safely in David's palace. He possesses what he wants. No one needs to know. He's been in control the whole time. David has tied up all the loose ends. He has covered it all up. Life will carry on as it should, and David can breathe a sigh of relief. No one needs to know any different. 
but somebody does know different. There is one loose end he has failed to tie up, and that loose end is God. So one day the prophet Nathan shows up in the palace courts, and he tells David the story of two men. One man is rich, and the other is poor. The one has a lot of sheep, and the poor man, he just has one little ewe, and he loves this ewe. He feeds her from the palm of his hand, he cuddles her at night, and the passage says he loves her like a daughter. One day, the rich man needs a sheep to feed a passerby, and instead of taking one of his many sheep, he goes and takes the poor man's sheep and feeds it to his guest. When David hears this story, he is enraged at this injustice. And this is what Nathan says. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites, and you have stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. And this is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make it happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. And then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Do you know what stops the power of sin in David's life? The truth. Not getting away with it not ignoring that it exists, not redefining it or pointing fingers at somebody else or dissecting it or trying to manage it, just the truth about the whole mess, the truth about how terrible it really is. And this is what we see in the story of David, that the whole dirty situation laid bare in one moment when David is exposed becomes the story of his restart. Here is the moment in David's life where he either keeps stuffing stuff under the carpet or putting bodies in the closet, or he engages the restart. And David chooses the restart. This terrible, truth-filled moment becomes the moment when David's life is restarted because it forces him again to deal with God. And dealing with God is ultimately dealing with the truth. And dealing with the truth means dealing with sin. And God only ever deals in truth. Confession is telling the truth. Confession becomes the place where we meet with God because God is a truth dealer. And this is the turning point of David's story. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He admits the truth. I did it. That's the real me. That's what actually happened. I am responsible. 
and we hear it in the psalm. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before you, me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. God is the loose end we will never tie up. God will not stay under our carpets, and God will not stay in our closets. Instead, God will meet us in the truth. Can you imagine that moment of exposure for David? Of course you can, because you felt it. It's happened to you. You've been there. You've been caught red-handed. What will you do? Will you continue with the lie, or will you face the truth? Here's the bad news. You will never escape the truth. It's the truth, and it is what it is. But here's the good news. You will never escape the truth. It is what it is. But it is what it is is also where the I am who I am lives. Confession is our right response to truth. It is the first step of our restart. It is the place where we finally meet with God. Confession is the place where we realize there is nothing we can do about the predicament that we've created for ourselves. We need help, and we are not covering it up or catching up or avoiding or managing it anymore. We're done. The truth sets us free to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Confession is the radical yielding and submission to God, the one who knows the bare truth about us all along. He knows all we've ever done. And this is our way back into full relationship with God. It is the way to healing. See, when we avoid the truth about our sin, we also avoid the amazing truth that comes next. We serve a God of hesed love. God, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In the first verse of Psalm 51, we see how this confession works. David doesn't make excuses or say the woman made him do it, or give a litany of reasons as to why he's turned out the way he has. Kingship is so lonely. She was real beautiful, super pretty. She was bathing on the roof. Other kings do it all the time. Instead, he says, God, I need your mercy. It is only your steadfast love that can save me now. And he asks God to take the chaos of his life and rescue him. He abandons himself to God's mercy. This is what it says in verses 10 and 12. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation 
and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The word for create in these verses is the word bara in Hebrew. And it's the same word that's used in Genesis 1 for the creation of the world. When God hovered over the face of the deep, over the waters of chaos, and created a good world. David is asking for this same kind of creative energy to come and brood over the chaos of his life, to recreate in him a brand new heart, a heart oriented to God. David is asking God to make him a brand new creation. This is what we read in 2 Corinthians 5. We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view, At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, but how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a brand new person. The old life is gone. A new life has come. So David did not have the picture of God in Christ like we do today. We know what God looks like, what God acts like, what God does, Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God looks like Jesus, right? And this is what God looks like. God submits God's self to the worst that sin can do, absorbs the power and the consequences of that sin through through Jesus' death on the cross. The faithful, loving kindness of God, God's hesed love, brought God to the cross in Jesus to deal with the relational issue, to deal with the chaos of sin, and to begin the work of recreation. Facing the truth about ourselves and what we've done is visiting a place where we die a little. We experience this shame and guilt, and it can feel like it's killing us. But Jesus shows us through his life, death, and resurrection that the place where you die a little is also the place where you are made new. Facing the truth about our own responsibility for the mess we find ourselves in brings us face to face with another truth, that we do not have to be God willing to forgive. In fact, it is God who is working to make us willing to seek his forgiveness. The work is already done. You are already forgiven. You do not have to hold your tongue right. All you have to do is tell the truth. Because it's in the place of truth that we face how bad it is. But then we also experience the amazing miracle that is God recreating us. God in Jesus has already absorbed the worst that the world could throw at God. It's dealt with. You are free. Now this morning, we're going to take communion together. This meal draws us into this reality that God in Christ is reconciling the world to God's self, including you. It is the place of truth, the place where we can admit how wrong we've gotten it, how we have broken relationship with God and with one another, and how our sin has brought chaos. But it is also the place where we meet the God of loving kindness, who is determined to make a new creation 
out of the chaos that we create. But before we eat together, we're going to tell the truth about ourselves to God. We're going to pull back the rug. We're going to let God see all the bodies under there. We're going to enter into the place where we feel like we die a little. We're going to confess. Let's pray together. We're going to pray a prayer of confession together. And we're going to start with the Lord's Prayer so that you can hear your voice if you want to, speaking these words, and then we'll stop with forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we'll, we'll continue in a different way. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. And together let's say, Lord, hear our prayers. We have listened to David being laid bare. And Lord, now we turn to you too and ask that you would come, that you would be present among us so that we can confess our sin, so that we can become aware of our sin. Without you, we just keep holding ourselves together, holding ourselves closed, unrelenting of the things that we do, of the things we fail to do, unaware of ways that we actively and passively participate in sin against you. So we open ourselves up to your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, and we ask you to open our eyes and to show us where we have sinned. in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in the places and among the people where we work. As we travel, in our secrets, in our loud arguments. Where we have broken relationships with you and turned away from your spirit's leading. And as you gently or insistently make us aware and point your finger on that place in us that we need to pay attention to, Lord, we confess them to you. We speak truth over these things that you are showing us. We have sinned. 
we need you to make us whole. For you are God. You are the Lord. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You are faithful and true and you forgive us our sins. You invite us back into relationship with you. You invite us to make things right with others whom we have wronged. Thank you, Lord. Please continue to do your healing work in our lives. And together we say, Lord, hear our prayers. Now we're going to eat together. If you have your pod, just a few simple instructions. You don't need to open it yet. But if you pull the top tab off, you'll find the wafer. Second tab, you'll find the juice. Okay. As you eat this meal, I want you to remember that you are forgiven. Before you sinned, before the chaos came into your life, before you started hiding things under the rug, God already had it all dealt with because of his faithful loving kindness. And all you have to do is receive it. Receive forgiveness, receive new life, receive the power to go out and make amends and to do the work of reconciliation in your world with this food. You are forgiven. Let's open the first tab of our little pod and take it out with these words. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His body broken for you. You can open the next tab if you haven't already. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper and, say, and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. His blood shed for you. Amen.